Was there ever a time, or even a series of times, when everything changed for you? Mine always seemed to involve a move. The first was when I attended Carleton University. It was the only year of education I could afford to be away from home, but it changed me. At the time, I was the only person in my gang to go off to university, and I was torn between my new school adventures and all the friends and adventures I was missing back home. I also had to choose between becoming a great bridge and euchre player or going to class. Fortunately, I settled into residence in school and in doing so, I grew up. I made decisions that impacted me. My second big move was also leaving Montreal, but this time on a permanent basis. I moved to Toronto to seek fame and fortune. Now I knew I could sell. I'd put myself through university selling radio advertising. And school had also proven to me that I could think, create and collaborate, but I didn't know many people in Toronto. And there was no one when it came to tapping into a network. Changing circumstances from the known to the unknown isn't easy. Still, I bet that most of us who find a way to navigate the new new and overcome speed bumps and all the emotions that flow with it, reflect back at some of the most memorable times of their life. They were satisfying. They created growth. They gave you context in who you are. But what about drastic change? When there's no preparation time, no lifelines to reach out to, when your life turns on a dime, when you shift from certainty to uncertainty, when you're caught in a cyclone of rapid and relentless change without an anchor or a compass. That's how I see the millions of people on our planet who are uprooted by natural disasters or war. An anti-aircraft missile went shooting across the sky trying to bring one down. It's murder, he says, simply murder. There are no other words for it. We are all so shaken. Across Atlantic Canada, Fiona has passed. Pain left behind has not. It's just heartbreaking, very heartbreaking. Today, some relief. Do they feel strength in numbers? Or do they wonder if their number will ever come up in terms of finding nourishment and a safe place to rest? My guest today is Shanda Ferney. She isn't a refugee and she wasn't forced to leave her home. But the change she went through was a drastic one when guns were pointed at her head and everything she knew and believed in, including herself, went up in smoke. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network. And this is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. To set the stage before that moment when a sledgehammer rained down and leveled all she took for granted, Shanda Marie Fernie lived a perfect life. Entrepreneur extraordinaire owned and operated several businesses, including an award-winning restaurant in Welland, Ontario, the place to go for breakfast. And Shanda had found love with a magician and Canadian darts champion named Jeff Compton. When he walked into her life, both of their lives changed. Fairy tale love affair, often exaggerated by the imagination of authors and screen directors, but theirs was real. The kind of love that doesn't simmer or fade, but dances like no one and everyone is watching. But everyone was watching her Prince Charming, as he turned out to be one of the kingpins of El Chapo's Mexican drug cartel. Jeff Compton was one of the biggest importers of illegal drugs that Canada had ever known. Shanda, welcome to Chatter That Matters. Hi, Tony. Thank you for having me. It's an honor. Before we get to the p- moment when guns are pointed at your head and all you thought and loved and took for granted was no longer a given, I want to first talk about you. Where did you grow up? We lived in a modest neighborhood in the small town of Thorold on the Niagara Peninsula. And what was family life like? Um, I came from a close-knit, blue-collar family. 
my younger brother and I were very close growing up. And to this day, we're still best friends. And talk about your parents. Like, how, what, what were they like in terms of nurturing and believing in their children and encouraging them to, uh, to chase their dreams? Um, my father, he was an electrician for the St. Lawrence Seaway Commission. And my mother was a stay-at-home mom. My father, um, he put in long hours at work, but so did my mother running the household. Ordering takeout or going to a restaurant was rare in our, in our household. It was um, only for special occasions or for a treat. Instead, the four of us would sit together at a, as a family, gathering at our kitchen table every night for a homemade dinner. And what are the lessons you think you learned from that time, from either your parents or your brother, that you still cherish today, that you still apply as you sort of navigate through life? Well, my mom, she liked to have order and routine. She ran a tight ship. If her home had been a business, she would have ran it like one. She was organized, she structured, structured and had a system. Um, in hindsight, looking back, my mom herself, she was an entrepreneur. Uh, she dabbled in a few ventures and tried to patent a few products and inventions. That's interesting. So did my mom. She was a stay-at-home mom until she was forced to go back to work, but she was always inventing games and trying to find ways to sell her ideas. And that, that brought back an incredible memory for me. Now, you become a successful entrepreneur, but I look at the foundation of your business. Your mom's organized. She's dabbling in entrepreneurship. Your dad is as steady as a rock. Where did that entrepreneurial spirit come from? I think I'd have to say it's from my mom. You know, I get my hustle, my drive, my work ethic from her. My dad, he was laid back, easygoing. And, you know, if there was a wedding, he'd be the first one there with his dancing shoes on. He, uh, you know, he likes to tell the story about the first time he laid eyes on my mother that he knew she was the one he'd marry. It's, it's from him that I get my loving, fun side, and my romantic side. That's beautiful. And, you know, there's a lot of people that dream about being their own boss or being a lead singer of a rock and roll band, but it's a tough gauntlet to go from dreaming and doing. And you did it, and I'm just curious how you, where you found the, the courage and, and belief in yourself that you could make something that was your own. Well, as a child, I believe we all had dreams, and I wanted to be a mermaid, to be honest. Um, it was obvious at a young age, like I knew I was meant to be an entrepreneur. I just, I just didn't know it at the time. From an early age, I got excited about being my own boss. I had an imaginary shop in the living room, uh, pretending I was serving customers in a restaurant. And that's, that's where I got the dream of opening my restaurant one day. Um, I, as I got older, I had a, my first gig was setting up a Kool-Aid stand. I had a wild imagination and envisioned a lineup of customers and got excited about it. Um, I even remember making an open and close sign, tenting a piece of paper and pulled out a toy cash register to set up a booth. How did the Kool-Aid stand go? I just remember like loving the designing the booth and and uh you know i i pictured lots of customers i really don't know if i had lots <laughs> and when you went out to a restaurant with your family you mentioned that it was really as only for special occasions do you think you saw something that 
many people don't that just take going up for dinner for granted that it was so exciting and special that you just took it all in versus just we're just there for a sandwich or a hamburger you know i i saw my mom work hard around the house and i think you know i didn't appreciate that growing up um what it took to run a household and you know recalling her standing there for hours at a time peeling apples for homemade pies or, you know, putting a roast in, in the oven. It, um, you know, it's from her that I get my work ethics. We didn't go out for dinner. It was, you know, just for a special occasion, a treat. We, you know, my parents worked hard for what they had. Is your mom still with you? Yep, they're both, they're both still with me. And, um, she must be so proud of you that in terms of, the, both of them must be so proud in terms of the love you have for them. We're a very close-knit family. And uh, my parents will be celebrating their 51st anniversary this February. I'm sure the person that did the Kool-Aid stand and with the cash register box and the open and close sign is going to plan something very special for her parents' 51st. <laughs> yes, of course. A massive drug raid in southern Ontario has put a big dent in a major international drug trafficking ring. Project Roadmaster. Cocaine trafficking charge. Year-long Roadmaster investigation. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Today I'm talking to Chanda Fernie, and Chanda lived a perfect life. She was a successful entrepreneur, a contributor and well-liked in her small town, and then she found Jeffrey Compton turned out to be the love of her life. Shanda, you end up in Welland, Ontario, and one of your businesses is a local diner that's winning awards. What was the secret to your success? I believe the secret was doing everything with passion. Every day I got up, it didn't feel like a job. I loved what I did. Um, and everyone who's in the restaurant business, I believe they, that it just gets in your blood. Uh, consistency. Consistency was key. Being consistent with everything, products, food, policies, systems in place. Um, Staff used to joke that it was like Groundhog Day, day in and day out. We did the same thing. It was a running joke in the restaurant. How did you get along with your staff? I cared very much about my employees. Some became like family and complete strangers who came in to dine they became loyal customers and some of them eventually close friends. I, I believe this was also another key to my success is having great relationships with people. How about if there was ever times where you had to come down on an employee, you had to, you know, you had to challenge their behavior or worse, where they crossed the line. Could you ever become their boss given that you were such a close friend? Yes, I, I wore many hats. I knew when I had to put the boss hat on and, uh, you know, it's my livelihoods. So um, I knew when, you know, when I had to do that. You got this perfect life. You're growing as a leader. You've got customers and employees that you feel are family and close friends. And the only thing missing is your significant other. And then Jeff Compton walks into your life. How did you meet him for the first time? Um... I got my 
first job waitressing at a restaurant that Jeff owned with his parents. I worked for them for a few months, but they ended up selling the restaurant. And I didn't see him for almost 20 years until he walked into mine. So take me back to that when you're starting your first jobs and he's part of the ownership and stuff. I mean, was there a relationship at all then? Did you look at him? No, we... um, it was for a very short period of time and um he was my boss i didn't even you know think think of a relationship there was something definitely between us i feel like there was a connection and i feel like but i just admired him as my boss and you know uh, nothing developed and what was the age difference between the two of you was he much older or i think it's 2 years yeah. So 20 years later, how did you run into him again? It was just a typical day at the restaurant and Jeff strolled in with his uh, business associate and um, I hadn't seen him for 20 years. And I was actually excited, you know, to see him and reminisce and catch up. But he seemed like, you know, he's in a rush. So we didn't get to chit chat. And he actually left and I thought he kind of acted <laughs> like a jerk. And then he came back the next day um, and I could feel his eyes on me and it just happened from there. It didn't stop. I mean, you describe it almost as, I guess you would call it love is second sight. But the way he describes himself is he's a magician and a Canadian dart champion. Was that really his professions as well? I mean, could he hit bullseyes with the dart and take a deck of cards and dazzle you with tricks? Well, this all happened um, way before I was in the picture, but I did see all the newspaper clippings and magazine articles he cut out and saved in a, you know, in an album. His mom had a few of them framed and hung on the wall in their family home. Um, he had a room full of trophies uh, from his um, dart career. He, he played um, darts professionally for years and was number one in Canada and fourth in the world. Wow. How long did you date before your life turned upside down? Almost two years. And how was this two years? Was it just as magical as the media has described it? It was like a fairy tale. It really was. When I say he swept me off my feet, he, he really did do that. Very often, it's hard to prioritize. I mean, you've got this mad love affair going on. You have a, you're madly in love with your business. How did you manage to both of the, keep both of them going as opposed to one suffering over the other? Life just became better. It was easy because Jeff took care of a lot of things as in around the house. And um, it was just nice knowing you had a life partner. I went to work a little happier and it just was easier. And you must have been talking about a future then. I mean, we're not talking about just a, a casual connection swept off your feet. You must have been thinking that this was going to be your your life going forward. Yes, uh, we talked about a future together. I, I believe we were both madly in love. We had commitment rings and the next step would have been marriage. We both wanted that. And how did both of your parents feel about this relationship? At the time, I, I believe everybody loved Jeff. Um, he was very close with all my family and friends. So take us back to the night 
of the arrest. It wasn't the nighttime that it happened? The actual raid happened at 5.30 a.m. But um, we went to bed around 10.30 p.m. We woke up because we heard pounding at the front door and yelling. And um, the house shook. I thought we were being robbed. It was pitch dark. And the next thing I remember were guns pointed to our heads. We, we weren't being robbed. It was a police raid and a SWAT team surrounded the entire house. It was traumatizing. You must have looked to the only bedrock you had to Jeff to try to contextualize what's happening. Did you notice anything different with him? Did he seem different or was it he was just as traumatized as you were that what was a good night's sleep turned into an absolute waking up nightmare? He um, begged me to stay in the bedroom and we both, I didn't listen to him, of course, and I run with him to the door. But after the SWAT team entered the home, there were no longer guns to our head. They read Jeff's charges and all I heard was cocaine, cocaine, cocaine. And by the look on Jeff's face and by my reaction, I just kept saying, you have the wrong house. When did you move from a state of denial to the reality that that Jeff was a magician playing a different hand? I was in a state of confusion. I didn't know what to believe at the time. All I knew was drugs were not a part of our lives. Nothing added up. There were no signs of him being part of any illegal activity, never mind a, a supposed kingpin working with a Mexican cartel. You never saw any signs, like there wasn't... What, what did he do to earn money while this was happening? You mentioned he did a lot of stuff around the home. Was he, was he working even? Yeah, he was, um, a, he was a successful entrepreneur also. Um, he had a refurbishing business that, you know, he would get um, products in. This is why he had a warehouse and he'd have products come in and um, sell them to dollar stores, liquidation centers, things like that. Um, so, you know, I had a successful business. It wasn't hard to believe that he did too. And did he ever lose focus for a second and show some wealth that you didn't imagine he had that, you know, he, you're walking by a jewelry store, he buys you a bracelet or spontaneously you go off on this incredible first classification. Did any of that happen or is it just more life was just kind of who we were and, that, and that's what we did? Well, it was, you know, he was definitely extravagant. He was romantic and he was, you know, very generous, not just with me, but with everybody. Hi, it's Tony Chapman. When we return, many people question whether Shanda was involved in his operation. And worse, she experiences severe PTSD and depression from the raid and the loss of her relationship. Hi, it's Tony Chapman, host of Chatter That Matters, presented by RBC. Small business owners are the heart of our economy, and it's our collective interest to keep them beating strong. Small Business Matters to RBC, and a big shout-out for their Small Business Navigator portal that points the way to practical resources, money-saving offers, and financial advice. Find out more at rbc.com slash smallbusinessnavigator. 
It's being touted as the biggest drug bust in Canadian history and probably the most dramatic. There's a staggering amount of cocaine. People from Ontario and one from Mexico are in custody. 43-year-old Jeffrey Compon of Welland. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Today I'm talking to Chanda Fernie, and Chanda lived a perfect life. She was a successful entrepreneur, a contributor and well-liked in her small town, and then she found Jeffrey Compton, who turned out to be the love of her life, until one day at dawn, she woke up to a loud bang on her door, and then guns pointing at her and Jeffrey's head, and for good reason. Jeff, it turns out, was the kingpin of a major Mexican drug cartel. And Chandra, she would have to learn to survive to tell her tale. This sounds like a wild movie. A successful entrepreneur meets the love of her life and all she believes evaporates at gunpoint. You're in luck. Netflix has confirmed a series on the drug bust. But Chandra, one of the things you found so hard to accept is that the people you live with within your small town, some of them you've cited as feeling as close friends and family, even people across Canada around the world, question whether you were involved in Jeff's drug operation. Given what you're dealing with and this reality shattered, the fact that this was your new reality must have been impossible to deal with. It was hurtful. Um, I guess it's just human nature. People assume the worst. After the story hit the local newspaper, radio, you know, social media, TV, gossip definitely spread throughout town like wildfire. And after the news broke, I felt beaten. I felt scared. Uh, I was in the public eye. It was uh, a really hard time. I remember talking with you and you said what bothered you the most was almost the whispers as you walked by. It's like they were saying she must have known what was going on or, you know, maybe she's got all the money. I mean, what advice can you give to people who are attacked without reason, without any validation, but simply attacked, as you say, because it's just human nature to think the worst? Well, I can't control or change people's minds about their opinion of what happened. And, and that's the hard part for me because it's like asking someone's, you know, who had a partner that had an affair or a gambling problem, you know, how didn't you know? Looking back, you know, maybe there should have been signs, but that's the huge part of my struggle. There really were no signs. And, you know, sorry, Tony. That's an emotional part for me. Don't be apologizing. It's one of the reasons why you wrote this book and why you're going to help so many other people is it is emotional. You're allowed to be emotional. We're talking about as humans that, you know, are cynical and, you know, just want to find wrong in others. And, I, you know, I think what you are is a role model for people because you found a way either to grow a thicker skin or to just move on with your life. And I think that's an important thing to share with people. You know, and, and the other part is, like, we were under surveillance for almost a year. And I found out that our phone conversations were listened to, we were followed, we were photographed. Like, the list, there were listening devices planted in our home, in our vehicle. And, and the reality is, like, the facts are that if I had any knowledge or involvement, I would have been arrested at the time Jeff was. And that was my saving grace, being under surveillance. How violated did you feel that people were listening in on your conversations? I mean, you know, what you talk about with the person you love isn't something for the public domain. It really does something to you mentally, you know, um, 
you know, I, I still struggle with that to this day. Like I have a hard time with technology. Um, and you know, it, it, you know, you feel very violated. You're listened to, you're watched, you're, you know, um, I'm still wrapping my head around it. <laughs> Jeff was sentenced to life. How did you deal with the time between when those guns were pointed at your head and he was arrested to the sentencing? I mean, you must have been left in limbo wondering if this was a nightmare. Or was this going to, was Jeff going to come back home? I mean, what was that time like? It, it's been a long ordeal and I truly believed he was innocent at the time. And I clung to hope. Hope, it's such a powerful thing. When the life sentence was given out in court, were you in the court at the time? Uh, I did not support him. How did that sentence impact you? Because that truly is a statement that whatever hope, whatever dream had to be over. I don't think um, our love affair was ever over. We both held on and we held on to hope. I read several articles when your book came out. And congratulations, by the way. It not only is it a wonderful book to read, but it's it's done so well on the charts. But it said you never considered yourself a victim. Instead, you felt you were a survivor of a broken heart. What did you mean by that? At, at the time, I, I thought, you know, of course, I, I went into the why is this happening? Why me? Um, there's no such thing as a perfect fairy tale life. And life wasn't turning out how I planned. Um I was madly in love and I had a broken heart. I, I don't think I'm a victim. I'm, I'm just a survivor of a broken heart. When you're madly in love with somebody, I would say your heart roars over your, your head and, and even your behavior. You talked about translating some of your, your, your pain into getting back into your business. What was your relationship like with Jeff leading up to the trial in terms of how did you compartmentalize that knowing that the person you surrendered your heart to was also living this other life. Well, the hard part for me is he maintains he's innocent. I, I don't believe, I don't know what to believe. And I have no idea about his innocence or guilt, but what was it like when you realized that his sentence for his crime, they accused him of importing over two tons of cocaine over a three-year period, was going to be life in prison. Was that also your life sentence? This has been a long ordeal. Um, I don't know how to answer that. <laughs> to me, it's always, I'm so curious about humanity. And, you know, the bonds of love are so powerful. My mom was married to a, a manic, depressive, bipolar person who was, when he was drinking, which is how he self-medicated, he was horrific. And when he wasn't drinking, he was one of the kindest people on the planet. And I believe she loved him in both places. And I always admired her for that, hated her for sometimes for staying in that relationship because I think she died of old age at age 53 because of what it was like. But I'm just always curious about love in terms of its ability to find its own way to rationalize and how you accept other people's pains and consequences as your own. And that's just really why I was asking that question. But if you're not comfortable answering it, we don't, we don't need to. I just don't think our love affair was ever over. And one of the ways you tried to repair your heart was journaling, writing things down. How did that come about? And why do you feel that was instrumental in moving on with your life? 
Um, I started journaling, just putting my feelings to paper, and writing became very therapeutic. I used it as a way to start my healing process. After months of journaling, it somehow just turned into a book. It was also my opportunity to tell my side of the story. And how important was it and is it today to your emotional health, getting the kind of feedback you're getting all over the world from people who are also survivors of massive and instant change in their life? Um, you know, every, everybody has a story. Um, I just wanted people to know they're not alone. I want people to know, like, when they're faced with depression, suicidal thoughts, or isolation, that, you know, they're not alone. Everybody has a story. And journaling is powerful. Writing can um, help you process it, and sharing it can help others. And you turned it into a book. Has Jeff Compton ever read that book? Yes, he's read it, but he hasn't made his feelings known. And does that bother you, or is that... Just you put that in a compartment and that's that was yesterday and today's today. Yeah, I, I didn't do it for him uh, to punish or give him a message. I wrote it to tell my love story and to rescue myself from a dark place. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Today I'm talking to Chanda Fernie, and Chanda lived a perfect life. She was a successful entrepreneur a contributor and well-liked in her small town. And then she found Jeffrey Compton, who turned out to be the love of her life. Until one day at dawn, she woke up to a loud bang on her door and then guns pointing at her and Jeffrey's head. And for good reason. Jeff, it turns out, was the kingpin of a major Mexican drug cartel. In Chandra, she would have to learn to survive to tell her tale. This is almost unheard of. A self-published book becomes the kind of success that yours has become. You must be so proud of, of that because I have to imagine there was times when this all happened that you were wondering if your life was worth living. And now I kind of see your life as a life worth sharing. Well, of course, I hoped and prayed for it to happen um, for, you know, bestseller. But writing, it was the healing process. And then when I got to the publishing step, well, <laughs> that was the entrepreneur saying, I got this. It was really rewarding. And, um, you know, it was, it was, um, a good journey of, you know, you, it led me down a path of self discovery. It must be so exciting to feel that entrepreneurial spirit roar again, because that, before you met Jeff, that was really, in many ways, how you identified who you were and why you mattered was the fact that you were such a successful entrepreneur. So it must have felt great to really channel that again and create something and build something. I, I forgot to live with passion. I forgot to keep chasing my dreams and to believe in myself. I, for, I forgot who I was at that point. And my final question for you, Chad, it's been almost 10 years since the arrest. What have you learned about yourself over the past decade? I think the biggest thing is I came to realize that I didn't need to be saved, fixed, or loved to be happy. Um, there's nobody, nobody better to love me than me. And um, I'm going to live with passion, chase my dreams, and never forget again who I am. You know, Chanda, I always end my uh, talks with the three things I've learned. And the first one, which I think is such a powerful statement, was a sense of I wasn't a victim. 
I was a survivor of a broken heart. And I think it's important that we look at the fact that change happens in our lives. Sometimes it's unexpected, unplanned for, sometimes it's planned for. But the more we focus on the positivity, the more we focus on the opportunity versus just sitting back on our back feet, I think the better chance we have turning adversity into something much better. I think the second one is just this sense of what you learned that you didn't need love to define who you are and why you mattered. You just need who you are inside. And the third thing is just your whole concept of journaling and writing things down. And I think it's great advice for everybody in life because we're dealing with so many incoming planes, so much change, lots of anxiety in the world, inflation and the pandemic and everything else that's coming at us. And sometimes just putting words to paper can help us come to terms with what we can control and what we can do. So for all of that and more, I am so honored that you are part of this episode of Chat in the Matters. Thank you for having me. It's been an honor. Joining me now is my go-to person for anything to do with your mental health. She's Amy Deacon. She's the founder and CEO of Toronto Wellness Counseling. Amy, welcome back to Chatter That Matters. Thank you so much, Tony. You have no idea how many people comment when you're on my show about the advice that you bring. And I think for good reason, because you just have this great combination of smarts with heart. I mean, I, I just made that up. That was quite good, smarts and heart. But I want to talk to you about this story, Chanda Fernie. I want to understand from your point of view, when you think your life is perfect, I mean, in this case, she had an incredible business. She's living in a small town. Everybody loves her. She meets the love of her life, somebody she'd met 20 years earlier and comes back in her life. They're living this fairy tale. And then one morning, 5 a.m., the door's being banged on and she's scared. Who's there? They open up the door. It's a SWAT team. They arrest her boyfriend the biggest drug bust ever in Ontario. He's part of a kingpin in a Mexican cartel sent to prison and her whole life shatters. Have you ever experienced anything like that when somebody's living the best possible life and then it turns on a dime? So I've not personally experienced that yet. I will keep you posted, but I have had friends and family that have experienced it as well as clients. And it's truly as though you are witnessing the death of a person. You are mourning in two ways. You're mourning this life that you had, the relationship that you had, but you're also grieving this trust that you thought was embedded in your life. It is one of the most disorienting and traumatizing things a person can go through because they look back at the past, in this instance, two decades of their life and literally ask themselves, was any of it real? How awful is that for somebody to go through? You know, she talked about getting PTSD and going to a mental depression and almost losing everything. And what brought her back was this sense of journaling. She started writing things down to try to, as you said, to kind of come to terms with what was real and not. And then over time, she turned it into a book. Is that part of the therapy that you would suggest to people that they actually relive it, even if it's just putting this pen to paper? Absolutely. I mean, I think it's one of those recommendations that we've heard for years. Journaling is so helpful, but I, I've actually started journaling probably the past six months and I can't tell you how helpful it is. It's a way of decluttering your brain and just giving space to what we're going through mentally, emotionally, physically, relationally. And it can be such a incredible therapeutic tool in helping us to make sense of what happened and what, what we're going through. The other thing that I would add is that often when people 
go through something like this, and especially if they pair it with journaling, what they find is that they're better able to make space for multiple truths. The truth that there was deception, the truth that there was trauma, but also the truth that there probably were elements of love and elements of of emotions and memories that very much were real. But I find that journaling is a great way to make space for all of it. In our heads, we ping pong back and forth between one fact or the other. You know, we started off before this interview and you're telling you that you caught a bit of the flu from your kids and you weren't up to it. You're always so amazing, Amy Deacon. Now, I know how busy you are, both as the founder and CEO, but also someone spends a lot of time with patients. I want to take advantage of the fact that I'm airing the show during Small Business Month. How do you manage to do it all? It's not easy. You know, it's, it's funny. I think that we're, we're, we're seeing a lot of, you know, the great resignation and quiet quitting. And I think that in some, at times, entrepreneurship can be really glamorized. And you know, there's a hustle and there's a grind and there's a lot of sacrifice behind almost like the glitz and the glamour of it. Um, but... I adore small businesses. I adore, you know, I think there's something really special, somebody that's trying to create a lifestyle and, and a business that, that supports their community and supports the their neighbors. And I think every once in a while, when you have the option of going to a big box store or that local one or one of the big, big box grocery stores or your local little, you know, fruit market, support your local people, right? It, it, it's a lot of hard work and, and they're typically doing it because they we really do want to serve our communities and have have a local connection. Well, speaking of connections and serving, and I know you're not feeling well today, but the audience would never know other than me mentioning it. But thank you once again for, uh, for being part of the show. You're so welcome, Tony. Chatter That Matters has been a presentation of RBC. Fridays, join Tony Chapman for Chatter That Matters on the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network. It's Tony Chapman. Let's chat soon.